Welcome to the Savvy Black Birther, a podcast about all things Black birth. Each week we inspire, cultivate, validate, and protect the voice of Black birthers as consumers of healthcare in the United States. It equips our listeners with evidence-based information so they become savvy healthcare consumers during their pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum. Now here's your host, the community's midwife, Takia Sakina Ballard, certified nurse midwife. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for episode nine of the Savvy Black Birther. The title of this episode is Black Midwifery, Past, Present, and Future, a real and relevant conversation for the community. I've invited Black midwives to this conversation who represent experiences of our past, present, and future in midwifery. They each come to this conversation with vastly rich and deeply rooted experiences, which will surely provide an invaluable take on what is known as Black midwifery. I invite you to this conversation to listen intently and take it all in. Peace and blessings. My name is Um Salama Abdullah Zaima. I am a midwife. My oldest babies are 42 years old. My earliest train was at the farm, a hippie community in South Central Tennessee where the book Spiritual Midwifery was written. I became a registered nurse and was the first black graduate of Emory University's Nurse Midwifery Master's Program. I've caught over 4,000 babies at home in hospital and birth centers. I've worked in nine states and five countries. I've been on the board of the Midwives Alliance of North America, chaired the committee that became the North American Registry of Midwives. I've been a subject matter expert, tested the test, and served on the NARM board. I'm currently attending births in Atlanta, Georgia, as a senior midwife with Mandela Midwifery. And I chair the Community Midwives National Alliance and Legislative Committee working on certification and training for community midwives. I have three children, 11 grandchildren, 26 great-grandchildren, and eight great-great-grands with two on the way. Hi, I am Ayanna Davison. I am a certified nurse midwife and women's health nurse practitioner, currently practicing in Southern California, but I hail from Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, I am passionate about my work and the calling of midwifery. What is most pressing to me within the work that I do is addressing the crisis that Black women and people face in the U.S., providing quality care for all individuals and families, and preserving the legacy of Black midwives and birth work. I created a business and social media platform called The Vagina Chronicles to educate, encourage, and create safe space for folks interested in all things birth work, empowerment, and overall obstetric and gynecologic health. In this community, I aim to encourage healing through sharing our stories as opposed to the historical traumatic secrecy so that our communities can continue to excel. Okay, my name is Afu Hassan. I am a midwife in Houston, Texas. I hail from New Haven, Connecticut. I have four children. They were all born at home. They were all breastfed. And I currently um, am, am the owner and midwife of the birthing place. Um, so we do uh, 
I used to do home birth. I have a couple of home births, but mostly I do um, birth center births because <clears throat> birth center is on the first floor. I live on the second floor. So when I go to work, I just come downstairs. Um, I am passionate about um, teaching African-American women about the crisis and even Caucasians because they're in crisis also. They just don't know it. Um, and I think that the problem is not going to be solved until we um, include everybody in it uh, and let them know, unfortunately, that the, the medical model of care is just not serving us. And so I've been a midwife for 38 years. And so my oldest children are 36 and 37. Um, and I still am in touch with some of them, which is really, really nice. So um, midwifery is, uh, I guess, my passion. And, um, and I just uh, hope that it doesn't die because I was talking to Nankuleko and she was, think she was saying that amongst uh, the African-American midwives is dying. And after having a conversation with her, I couldn't, I didn't have enough to say, oh, no, it's not. Um, and so um, I'm here to promote it um, and to help it to keep going. Greetings. My name is F.A. Osarin. I've been a doula since 2014. I've completed my trainings and certification as a full spectrum doula with Donna, the doula project and ancient song doula services. I am also a student midwife slash young midwife. Um, I completed a direct, direct entry midwifery apprenticeship with my tenant at La Luz um, in El Paso, um, also with Borderland Birth Education and Advocacy, Advocacy Project also in El Paso. Um, and I did apprenticing with J-Corps Sunday Midwifery here in Brooklyn, New York. I've served over 200 families in Houston, New York City, and El Paso. Um, I'm currently a full-time student now um, completing my RN, my registered nursing degree in New York. Um, I'm also an avid reproductive and birth justice advocate and the founder of Doula Chronicles, a reproductive education platform for communities of color. Um, we focus on holistic uterine health and reproductive justice education. I'm also the co-founder of Homecoming, a collective by BIPOC queer and trans birth workers and healers. Um, and in the future, I aim to return back to the continent of uh, West Africa, particularly Nigeria, where my family is from and living, um, to provide midwifery support there. I also like to solo travel, I like biking throughout the city, um, and I like hot yoga without the background. Called you to this very um, peculiar work. Thank you, midwives. Um, Two of you said something very interesting to me, and that will be a wonderful segue to my question. Um, one, we talked about midwifery potentially dying as a black midwife, that, you know, black midwifery potentially dying. And then um, you said, F.A., uh, that you are, you refer to yourself as a young midwife as opposed to a student midwife. And I thought that was very interesting as well, um, because I can see why you would want to refer to yourself that way as opposed to student, because student implies that you're, you don't have any, any knowledge or any intuition that would uh, help to define your midwifery work. Um, so I, I think that's very interesting and I hope that we'll be able to get to talk about that. 
Um, but what my first question is, is what called you guys to the profession of midwifery? Because many people just don't understand what midwifery is all about. And, you know, I want to be able to make sure people understand that. But what? Well, mid midwife means with woman. So we do have a definition, even if people don't know what it is. And all I knew when I was in college or even before, I wanted to deliver babies. And so when I was in college, I was seen by a midwife and I was like, oh, they still have those. Like, I didn't even know that midwives still existed. And so I went about trying to figure out what kind of midwife I wanted to be. And, um, and that was before the internet, that was, you know, before all of that. And I realized I wanted to be a direct entry midwife um, because uh, graduating from an Ivy League institution, it, that's so high up. And I wanted to learn midwifery from the ground up and to be with the people. And so that's why I chose direct entry midwifery for my form of uh, education. And I have to say that I totally um, embrace it and glad that I went the route that I went because a lot of my sisters who are CNMs, I see what they have to deal with um, in being in, and I, I applaud you for being in that arena, but that just arena is just not for me. Um, and so, uh, that's what the calling was and as soon as i heard that there was a word that there were midwives i was like that's what i am so then i went to pursue it for me um my 19 going on 12 year old goddaughter i thinking there's got to be a better way there's just got to be a better way um the training that i had in the police department it was a, a half hour film and basically it said hands off and it's going to be okay having recently become muslim i had trust that allah made a system that works and basically the less you mess the better things turn out i was a new york city police officer and a new muslim I had two pregnant teenagers in my house, my 16-year-old daughter. Uh, the first two babies were born at my house. I was dumb and lucky, really blessed, actually. And the third birth that I did was a friend from the mosque who had hired some midwives, um, some nurse midwives, but they didn't come until the end. And she wanted somebody to be there and hold her hand. It brought back to me the horrors of my first birth and giving birth to my daughter. Peculiar, the reason why I say strange or peculiar is because it's perceived that way by others, right? We might not understand it as strange or peculiar because it's a, it's a calling to us, but people look at it and say, well, what is midwifery? What, what do we do? They really oftentimes um, confuse it with other works. We were confused with what physicians do. We're confused with what doulas do. And so that's why I say peculiar, peculiar in a way, in a positive way, that our work is undefined and unlike any other. So I'll, I'll clarify that for you. It slid out and just laid there. And she stepped in between us. She gave it three breaths. He kicked over and started screaming, but scared the shit out of me. And so I quit. 
and I started trying to figure out how to, you know, get some knowledge. It's like, this is not something you learn from a book. This is life and death. If something happens to somebody that could have been prevented, can you live with that? You know, so, but then my daughter and goddaughter were both pregnant again, and they didn't want to hear that. What do you mean you're scared? You weren't scared the last time. <laughs> I don't want to go to the hospital. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. So anyway, I had three books. Um, Raven Lang's birth book, and she was in Santa Cruz, California. It was Lester Hazel, Childbirth at Home, and she was in Colorado. And Spiritual Midwifery, and they were in Tennessee. So I was living in Brooklyn. Tennessee was the closest. I wrote him a letter. I got two weeks vacation coming up. Do you think you could teach me anything in two weeks? And he told me to come and bring a tent. <laughs> and I fell in love with how they do things, you know, including the mother as part of the team, trusting the mother. Um, she had access to her own, her baby's chart at any time. Um, they basically worked holistically, and I thought to myself, that's what I want to learn. And I quit my job, bought a van, um, went to the farm, and the rest is history. I spent um, a little over two years there training with the midwives. And I would travel back and forth to New York for family emergencies or, you know, for particular babies. Or... That's how I got involved. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, I found out, my grandmother died in 2011. Um, and I, was, I had already completed my registered nursing um, degree. I had planned from a very early age to become an OBGYN. I was pre-med and undergrad, completed that, sat for the MCAT, um, did a post-baccalaureate, sitting in a classroom full of medical students, realizing this is not what I wanted to do at all. Um, and the doors kept closing when I was there too. And I was like, but I know, like I'm supposed to be in this OB world. And um, so I was sitting down one day, nursing hit me, like almost like you see this light in the background. It was like, ah, um, was never afraid of births. Um, as a kid growing up, like I remember going to, it must've been either like the science center or something. And we were watching like a video of a birth and like all the children had left the room. And I was like, this is magical. This is amazing. And so um, I had never been scared of it, but had also never seen it in person, but was drawn to it. And so, um, in, in the course of nursing school, several months into nursing school, I was like, I'm going to be a midwife. And that was it from there. Um, like I said, my grandmother passed in 2011. And why I bring that up is, uh, she was, I knew her to be a registered nurse, work night shifts in New York city. Um, they lived in East Elmhurst, um, her and her sister, uh, were both, both registered nurses. She hails from the Island of Antigua and was a nurse there as far as I knew. So, um, you know, I, I heard the stories of nursing, but I didn't hear much of the stories from um, the island of Antigua. My grandmother's a very particular person and she shared only what she wanted to share. So um, <laughs> uh, when I 
started midwifery school or completed is when I found that I found out that my grandmother had been a, a certified nurse midwife in the island of Antigua. And so my calling, I believe, is not by accident. I don't think any of us, especially um, with a black background, I don't think it's by ch by chance or, or by choice sometimes. I think it's by lineage and by blood and that ancestral calling. And so I I say midwifery is in my bloodline. Um I have another uh um I have another aunt as well who just passed um and she was a a, a midwife in New York as well. And um the calling was just on my heart and nothing could have stopped it once it once once I realized what the vision was and so um between bloodline and that desire to be a part of the magic that is birth and caring for folks and our community that's that's where it comes from I don't really have a direct story um but I guess I can give a little bit where I started to participate in um, reproductive health and my aunt um, my mother's best friend is Yoruba and she does the first bath for everyone in the family and so in Yoruba culture the first bath or mostly in West African culture the first bath um, is done by an elder or the Family. And it's of stretching of the limbs and rubbing them down with either palm oil or baby oil in the new um, millennium. And there was this one part where she like grabs the, the ankles of the legs and she flips the baby up, shakes the baby and pulls the back baby up. She does that a couple of times. And the first time she, I was my younger sister had her firstborn. Um, she had did the baths on us, me and my siblings, on her children and everyone around us. But, you know, it's one of those things that's growing up. We're just like, yeah, we got some weird folks in the family that do stuff. And they didn't think anything of it. Um, and then when my sister had her first child, I, no, no, no. I'm actually, when my older sister had her first child, I filmed it. So my, my niece is now 14. So 14 years ago, I filmed it. Um, and they didn't really think much of it. And then my younger sister had her child um, eight years ago now. And I filmed it and I was like taking notes and asking all these questions. I was just very curious about like, what do you do with the umbilical cord? What is this and what is that? Um, and then the second birth that my younger sister had, I missed the birth, but I went to the hospital and she had these scratches on her in her inner thighs and I was like what happened to your legs and she said well they told me to hold my legs open but no one told me that I was digging into my skin um, from the epidural I'm, I'm assuming and I remember just being terrified of birth at the time and or being birthed in a hospital because when the birth in our births and our family has always been someone went to hospital or someone had a home birth and so forth. Um, and I didn't think much, anything of it outside. This doesn't seem like what birth is supposed to be like. I had a friend in college who delivered maybe about a month after that happened and she wanted a home birth. And we were like, we live in dorms. We're not going to have a home birth. Maybe we go to a birth center. 
um, where there was no birth centers that would take Medicaid or we had money, we were like sophomores in college. Um, we ended up having to travel all the way to Galveston, which was about 90 minutes outside of where we were in university in Texas. And through that experience, I, you know, I watched the business of being born and, you know, all the Googles and the internet and so forth. And I ended up training um, with Donna around that time. And in the training, I think it was like on the third day, it's the last day of the training. And they were all getting ready to end it. And I was like, that's it? I didn't learn anything that my aunt does. <laughs> and I was just expecting so much more. And it was one of the women in the training, she said, well, maybe you should enter Sister Song. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about Sister Song. And I Googled Sister Song, and it's this reproductive justice um, organization. And at the time, I was a third grade teacher. And I didn't like teaching anymore. And graduation was done. And I said I was going to move. And when I was looking for places to move, it was either Georgia, where Sister Song is, or Ancient Song in Brooklyn. And I had visited Brooklyn the year before. Um, and so I came out to Brooklyn to do the Ancient Song doula training. I think it was like my second week here and I was doing training that summer and it kind of just fell off through there. I, I started volunteering and in the office at Anxious Song and I never really left. I was I ended up being there for a little bit over a year um, before learning about what midwifery was and so forth. I think I attended maybe about 70 births before I really decided that this is what I'm going to do with my, my life. Um, and then it was right before midwifery school when I got my acceptance letter that my father told me, um, he was like, oh yeah, my mom used to turn breech babies that, for folks who wanted to go through hospital births. And I was like, Pauls, you never told me your mother was a midwife. He was like, well, everyone's the midwife. Um, and that was what it solidified it for me was this is, again, like, you know, Ayana saying it, and it's our lineage, but him telling me that my grandmother was a midwife and how he was present for a lot of births and everyone around them, it was normal to be birthing babies in the in your homes then. So that's kind of how I, I stepped into this passage. It's interesting that many of you say that it, it was midwifery, it sounds like that found you, you had this, this need to fill. Um, and so that's what makes me believe it's such a calling and perhaps in, ancestral, like many of you have mentioned. What, were, what are some of the things that you wish you knew then that you know now? Now that you're in the practice of midwifery, now that you've had to deal with societal uh, regulations and you know, licensing and working in and out of hospitals, homes, birth centers, education of midwifery. What do you wish you knew, you know, then that you already know now? Get out the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Um, Why is that? Well, well, let me back up before I say that. So okay. um, even, even early in, in uh, starting off, so I'm about 
five years in. Um, and so even in the first couple of years, you know, I had the shame about, um, about being a hospital midwife because I'm like, my community needs me outside. Like they don't need me in here and this is oppressive and you're starting to see more and more. And of course I, I was a labor and delivery nurse before that for several years before that. Um, so I saw it, but it, you know, it's already becoming ingrained into you some of the toxic traits that, and, and, um, um, uh, factors that you see in there. And so, I, I was, I was ashamed and it was a doula who spoke to me and said, um, our people have insurance and they're coming to see you. Like you need to be in the system so that they can have like a safe place to go. So that was encouraging. Um, just the more that I stay, um, there's a lot of, um, energy pull and we know midwifery is very much, um, energetic spiritual work and, um, sometimes that can be draining, especially when it's coming from somebody who is privileged and they can't see past their privilege. Um, so, so to answer your question, um, yes, we need, um, especially black midwives in the hospital system. Um, but I think if I could have told myself back then, start outside, um, and not that outside doesn't come with its own things, you know, but I, I think if I could have told myself that, um, I'd be in a different place now. I'm, I'm happy for what I've learned. I'm happy for the experiences or, you know, grateful for those experiences because I truly have learned quite a bit, but the toxic pull now is, is not good for my health. Um, and I want to do more with, with the people around me. So, um, and when I say people around me, I'm saying my, my, my people, especially, I, I think, I think in this year too, what we're seeing is another midwife had said, we're, we're delivering babies of people who would turn around and kill us in two seconds when they grow up. And so, um, that doesn't stop me from providing good care, but I really want to focus and hone in on the folks who really need me or really need us. And I think that speaks to um, what you were saying before about dying midwifery. I don't think black midwifery is dying at all. I think it's actually seeing um, a little bit of a resurgence. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm hoping that, that's, that we all see it <laughs> and um, contribute to it too. So if I knew then, I probably would start outside the hospital. I was very lucky. Um, when I started midwifery, because I was 23 years old, I got to meet Ayana Umsalama Nankuleko, and Ayana was the direct entry midwife. Umsalama started out kind of as a, but a direct entry midwife, and um, Makata, and I got to see them transition from uh, being a direct entry midwife to a CNM. And one of the things that, and uh, Ayana delivered all four of my kids. And one of the things that I learned from her was that in going to Columbia, like she became afraid of birth because it, it wasn't how they presented and then all the, th the steps you had to do. I can remember she was almost finished, but one of the things that held her up was that she didn't do episiotomies and she had to have so many episiotomies 
before she could get checked off. And this, the, the, her director was like, okay, cut her, cut her. And she was like, but she don't need to be cut. And, but she had to do it. And um, so coming out of that system, what, when she started doing home births again, she had to, what she said to us was that she had to keep telling herself that birth is normal, birth is natural, because in going into the system, it wasn't. And she used to work at LBJ, which was wonderful for us, because whenever I had a mom that it was no longer normal, I could bring them in there to her, and then she could um, finish the birth. Um, but it wasn't happy for her. Now, what was, what was happy was the money. Like she get a check every two weeks or however, but she really enjoyed that part. But a lot of the politics, a lot of the um, uh, different situations that she was put in, she didn't enjoy. And that's what made midwifery for her uncomfortable. Like Um Salama says she, I mean, I, I've been to a lot of the states Um Salama practiced in, and it, it wasn't, what I see is that her home birth practice gives her more joy. I remember she was in Beaumont. That was a trip, man. Um, and uh, so for me, for me, I was lucky because I got to make a choice, a, a, a concerted choice. Uh, so how do you want to practice? And after almost 38 years, I am, and they're clamping down on us. Um, but I am so happy with how I, how I'm practicing because it is like, I don't have somebody looking over my shoulder every two minutes. And I also don't have the help, you know, the help that you get when you're in the hospital. I also don't have that. So you gotta, you know, told that line, but um, in terms of what I wish I knew before, I I got to live it, I, and I got to make a choice, and I, I'm happy about my choice. It sounds like um, in making your choice, you had the role modeling and the people that went before you to see what, what you wanted Correct. to do and what you didn't Correct. want to do. And that's amazing because I, I don't know that everybody, I, I honestly can say that I never had that. I didn't have anybody that I could sit down and talk to and say, hey, what do you think is the best route? What worked for you? What didn't work for you? Right. I think that if we had that as, as Black midwives, a lot of us would be making choices that would be better uh, serving us as well. Um, like I'm sure Ayanna- At least you, could, you would have information. Yes. You would have information. You could see how, what worked for them. And then you could say, well, maybe or not. Because just going, like just doing it, like I didn't have to just do it. I didn't. I was so fortunate. I, I, I mean, and they love me. My, 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 my midwives love me. Yeah. That's a blessing. You're absolutely right when you say, you know, you're blessed because that is a blessing. I, I only thought that there was one type of midwife, a certified nurse midwife 20 plus years ago when I started right. my journey. So I had no idea. Um, but it's right. interesting. <laughs> I had a, a mentor while I was in school, um, Rashad Tahini Loyler. Some of you may know of her. She's a midwife based in L.A. 
and Rashad had set up this call, virtual calls before we knew we were on virtual every day. <laughs> and with several other black student midwives and we would check in, we would see what sent us emails, see what sent us care packages. Um, particularly Rashad went to the same school that I went to. So she knew certain preceptors that I was discussing or how the delay, the lay of the land was. Um, but I do feel like it still wasn't enough for me, particularly because it's one thing to get a warning or like some information about this is the type of pathway. It's another thing to, there's no real warning about the racism in midwifery and the racism that you're facing and as a student and, and trying to get through. I think that was the toughest part for me. The midwifery stuff was easy. You know, I, I still remember my first catch um, and how, but I also got yelled at for my first catch. I, I that I think that's probably why I know that as well because she was laboring so fast and she was, I think it was like her fourth or fifth baby and we were in a bathroom and the midwives were like, well, always bring them out the bathroom and bring it to the room and get them on the bed. And I was like, well, she's fine right here. And the, how it was shaped was like, I was in the corner of the bathroom and my assistant was on the other side and there was no room for everyone else. And we're supposed to do double-handed catches for your first word catches. Um, and she couldn't get in to help me catch. And I ended up catching by myself. And towards the end of the semester, when we did our review, she gave me a negative remark for me not waiting for her. It was just a very interesting experience. And for me, it was, I think if I could, what advice I needed was to take my time and that I did not need to go to a birth center slash school with women or and folks who did not know anything about my culture, who did not want to know anything about my culture, who were also running a birth center that was exploiting uh, Mexican women living on the border. On the border, um, and the CPM route, this this thing that we always say is like, oh, I got to get my numbers. I got to get my numbers. And I wish I would have just said, your numbers don't matter. You become a midwife when you become a midwife. And I would have never went to like a high volume school so I can get in my 70 year. Um, that was the most traumatic experience for me was this, the pace of learning midwifery um, combated with white supremacy. Um, also being away from family um being away from friends so not having a space to where i could retreat because i was now in a new city i was in a desert um, a completely different climate that i wasn't used to um, and it took me about two almost two years before i started doing you know midwifery again i, I took a long break i almost said i wasn't going to go back that i was just going to do doula work now that i know more i best i can be a better doula um, and yeah, I think it's take your time, find your preceptor and the ones that really speak to you and take care of you and sit with them and realize that the patients that you need during labor, during birth as a midwife is probably the same patient you're going to need to become a midwife. So are you going to nursing school, a black nursing school, or you just have a black mentor? No, I have a, I have black mentors. I'm just, I'm completing my RN um, right now. 
and the because the racism is there too that's what i'm trying to i'm trying right. to right so i guess when i when i main of the it's acknowledgement of i wasn't expecting naively i will say i wasn't expecting it to be so harsh in river free because it's always the the energy around midwife free is that we're all midwives. We all want the same things and we're all going into the same space. And I wasn't expecting white midwives to be violent in their midwife free practices and violence to us and, and teaching us as their students. Um, and again, that's just me, was how naively I went into it. So now that I, what I do know, if had I could have done it over, I would have probably packed up my bags and went to LA and probably just been a student for three, four years, however long it would have taken and would have been probably would have never in, had to interact with that level of ignorance. Um, so yeah, if I had to do it again, that's maybe that's what I would do. What I wish I had known was how difficult it would be to make a living at this profession I love. And if you, if your heart is in home births, you really, um, it's difficult. That's all that I could say. Um, I've never been really good at, at getting the money. And I always had to have a side hustle. It's one of the reasons I went to nursing school after I left the farm and after it, were, it was just too much going on and I couldn't stay, be gone from home any longer. I went to nursing school to keep, one, to keep learning, and two, um, because I knew that I could, you know, I could work a day here and a day there, and I wouldn't have to have a regular job. Um, the other thing that I wish I knew when I started was how important the psyche is. A woman needs to feel safe and loved to let go of a vulnerable new life. And that's something that um, they're definitely not teaching in nursing school or in nurse midwifery school. And it can make the difference. You know, it's like night and day. But it takes time, Um Salama. It takes time to go through births and and you know you do the um peer review and you say hey what could we have done differently because we know it now we know about sexual abuse we know about and how that holds you know a, a baby up we know about being abused by the husband how that whole by abused by the mom how that holds it up and so it took us time to um come to that you know and i so and i'm there now like most most of my clients are like i didn't know it was a counseling session i was like yeah but we got to get the baby out you know and so uh and, so, and the dads i said so you coming back and the dad's like yeah okay i'm coming back and this is just in the consultation because i you know i started off right away be, you know, doing it. And uh, it, Rashida was here earlier today. And she's another midwife 40 years from Chicago. And um, one of the things that she and Ayana had a hard time doing too, was asking for the money. Um, I was, a, I was married, but I was a single mom. And 
like I have to get paid. Like I've done it enough where I didn't get paid. Uh, and so, and then those, most of the time, those clients are the least uh, appreciative. They, oh, yeah. they get it for free. They're the least appreciative. People who pay me my fee, they come by, drop off food, do this, do that. And so now my free, <laughs> yeah, my free days are over and people criticize me a lot for, for that, but it's like, we got to live. And um, people think, oh, well, you have so many clients, they're paying you, we don't have to pay you. No, no, we got to pay me too. Yeah, so um, that at presently, that's not my problem because I'm not going to do it anymore. Because, I, you know, I had kids in college and doing all this and doing all that. And I, we working, we working hard. And then, and then now with social media, oh, they get a new car, they go on vacation, they get a new apartment, and and and, uh, and then I and I'll DM them and say, hey, can I get paid now? And they don't even respond. So I don't do it anymore. I I find it interesting that I'm hearing you guys, you know, as you're having this conversation about uh, what you would have wish you would have known then, you know, that you know now, mm -hmm. and it's very interesting that a, a midwife of 40 years, a midwife of 30 years, you know, you guys are saying some of the same things that a midwife of 17 years is, is, had also, has also gone through. Um, right. Having to work multiple jobs in order to make ends meet mm -hmm. while I was being a home birth midwife, um, you know, figuring out how I was going to make things work, trying to figure out how to get paid from people or insurance companies that take a year plus right. to pay you for the care you've already rendered. Babies walking around with college degrees and you're still mm -hmm. trying to get paid, you know, and just trying to live and then not being valued for the excellent service. And I'll mm -hmm. say that again, for the excellent service, the service that you give them that they'll never, ever be able to compare to any industrialized service that they're receiving. And it's mm -hmm. undervalued. And, and that was, that's what makes me to believe that society has been taught how to receive health care, specifically birth care. Um, we've been taught that it should be industrialized, medicalized. We, we were taught that it should be something that it's owed to me as, a, as opposed to something that you mm -hmm. value and that you put your time and energy to in a collective and partnership work with your care provider. Um, it's almost like those, those shiny cards, those healthcare cards, they think is just going to pay for everything. And so part of my work is to get people to understand that as they are birthers, they're also supposed to be better healthcare consumers and to value the care that they're receiving and to right. be invested in that care. You know, so some of the, uh, you guys were starting to talk about some of the, the, the joys and the challenges of midwifery. Um, and I know for me, one of the joys is obviously, you know, ushering that soul into the world and watching a family change immediately and, and, and you know, right in front of your eyes. But the, the, the struggle was the, the heartache, the, 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 the sleepless nights, the 24, 48 hours that I'm awake, the getting my car towed, you know, in New York City, getting the parking tickets that nobody offered to pay for me, you right. know, all of the things, working all hours of the day in terms of all types of weather, trucking in the snow, trucking in the rain, you know, and then not getting paid on top of that. 
and having to work extra time so that you're now you're away from your loved ones. Now your relationships are struggling and suffering. You know, those are the mm -hmm. things that we don't talk about. And I personally, I want to shed light on those things so that communities can understand that this work is a sacrificial work and it's the midwife that it costs to provide the work. Right. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Are you guys experiencing or have you, um, it sounds like experiencing some In of the school, same they, they talked about, the midwives would say all the time, it's just like having no journals left. And I would look at them just like, what do you, what does that mean? Why aren't you taking care of yourself? How are you, you're only 45. And <laughs> I, but I would, I also took it in like, note it. I would write it down. You like note it. And so when I did come back to New York and would do doula work, I knew how to stay no to clients. I knew how to make sure to say, this is my rate and I'm not going up below that rate. I knew how to really set boundaries because I did not want to set a, you know, a routine of not taking care of myself so I can take care of others. You know, when you're on a plane in the beginning, they say like, put the mask on yourself before you put the mask on someone else. I used to always listen to that. Like, I don't have a child, but I probably would put it on my child first before I put it on me. Uh, but you can't put it on your child if you die in the process of putting it on your child, right? And I think that it's also, you know, goes back into what I would do over again. It's really, I'm really taking my time now. And if that means like I need a break, I will take a break. And I really try to make sure that uh, I have access to the things that I have access to before I now give access to someone else or give access to myself. Um, and, you know, it's taking longer to complete this journey, but I'm now happier. I now can say like, well, I'll talk to my therapist about on Friday before I make a final decision. And I wish I would have had that in school. I wish I would have had somebody who constantly kept to help keep me accountable for taking care of myself. Very interesting. So some of the things that, you know, um, I'm hearing you guys say are, you know, very poignant and make a lot of sense as to why you know, midwife Afua, you said in the beginning that your colleague thought that maybe midwifery might be dying for the black midwife. I mean, mm -hmm. I know I certainly walked away from midwifery a few months ago just because, and I've walked, this is not my first time. I walked away one time for a year just to get a break um, and went back into it. But this time I feel like I've walked away for good and, and decided that I'm going to do midwifery a little differently as opposed to really that hands-on care because I felt myself physically dwindling and emotionally you know, dwindling. And so how mm -hmm. do we, how do we safeguard ourselves as midwives while uh, also preparing the future of midwives? Because I feel like if we had a process by which we invited future black midwives into the fold, we would have more prepared midwives and a, and a deeper rooted system and a stronger practice amongst ourselves. I, I find that when I was a midwife, I didn't have mentorship. I didn't have sisterhood. And for those of you who were able to find that, I'm so grateful that you did because it really probably mm -hmm. uh, propelled you and helped your, your practice along the way. But for mm -hmm. someone like me, who all I saw was white faces, um, and I had to you know, watch myself around those white faces because anytime I spoke with my hands or became, you know, had inf you know, ups and downs in my voices, you know, in my voice because I was excited or you know, describing how I was feeling 
feeling emotionally coming out of my voice, I was deemed intimidating. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that a majority of us are experiencing what I've experienced, but we're not putting voice to it. And, nor, and, and then we're not preparing the future for it. So what, what from your guys' experience, what would you suggest that we start doing as a black, as a community of black midwives? I think, I think we have to talk about it, like you're, just like you're saying. Um, so I, I mean, Tiki, you hit the, the nail on the head. That first year I felt so alone. That first year I was like, where, 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 where are my sister midwives? Social media is here now. And, and even then I wasn't using it as, as much as I do now, but like, I didn't have that, um, the mentorship, that, that support. Um, it wasn't until I was invited randomly to a birth worker of colors meeting, um, birth, birth, birth workers of color meeting. And, um, and then there was another black birth worker meeting that I met a community and then it just began to feel more safe and more like home. And I'm able to talk and take the mask off and be real about what's going on and what's happening. Um, so, so making sure that you find your community, like that's something that I, uh, you know, a lot of folks will ask, like, what, what, what do you suggest when I'm coming out of midwifery or when going in? I'm like, find your circle, find your crew and do it now, like before you get invested. And the other thing too is like, people will hear us talk about, because I mean, again, it's a magical uh, um, profession, but there's also a lot more that comes with it that we're talking about right now. And folks don't share that upfront. And so I think in order to build a stronger future for black midwives, we have to be real about what it is. And, you know, I've done, I've spoken at quite a number of places and people afterwards are like, you're inspiring me. I was really thinking about midwifery, da, da, da. And I, again, consider the cost, like not just financially, but emotionally, spiritually, you're investing all this. Like I was talking to another midwife um, and, and she's in home birth practice and that's, and, and birth, center, birth center practice. And that's all she knows. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, I'm in, like, like I said, nearly five years of practice hitting about 900 deliveries within that time. And she's like, well, how does that feel? And when I sit with that question, it's not, I don't, I don't necessarily celebrate the number. I celebrate the birth. I celebrate the success. I celebrate the people who are in front of me. But like when you sit and think about it, the energy um, that it takes, and if you're being that exceptional midwife that you're talking about, Takia, you know you're investing so much time and energy into this stuff. And I can't even, I can't even imagine uh, midwife Afua if if they're if they're not paying you for the work that you're doing. And it, that's basic, you know. That's mm-hmm. basic, you know. It's not even, it's not even. Um, this is not a grand thought. This is like you're doing going so far above and beyond what you have to do and to think that being in the home setting for birth you know back in the day that was the norm and now this is like the glam thing for some folks um so if if it's such then treat it as such you know but i I think you know coming back to the question i really do think we have to talk more about it and the realities and preparing like fortifying yourself it's like it's just like pregnancy 
it, it doesn't begin at conception. It begins well before. You have to prepare yourself for what your body is going to go through. And if you treat your body like trash before, well, we can't expect during our pregnancy for this to just turn around and be beautiful. So same with midwifery. We need to fortify ourselves, prepare ourselves for that time and going into it. And, uh, you know, I'm just getting chills to talk about it, but like, you know, being in your presence, um, midwife, midwife, even you, Takiya, that, that is the kind of, it, it gives me fire again. I know you, you all go through your, your moments, but these moments, these gatherings is what really can propel us again, the future forward. I'll say one more thing too. I was, we were talking in a group with, um, the, the name is slipping me it'll come back but uh, uh, um another elder midwife and you know some of us young young midwives <laughs> were saying you know i'm tired i'm tired i'm five years in and i'm tired exhausted mentally drained and i and i can speak only for the hospital system because that's where i'm at but i'm tired and she's like tired for what you young like you just started the work da -da -da. but like the work is real I, and I don't, I don't take it lightly. And I think some of our white counterparts do. They go home and they can separate. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that, that's really true. I that did. is oh so true. That, now that is oh so true. I think it's important to note the communities that we meet because that, I think that's why I naively went to Murphy School so openly. Um, and particularly because I knew it was going to be a dark entry apprenticeship and fast paced and all the students were living around a school. I thought it was going to be like how I learned to be a doula. Like here in Brooklyn, um, with Ancient Song, you know, we were in this big old house in Bed-Stuy and it was like this open door policy and it was like, we're all barefoot and birth workers and pregnant folks in here. And we were doing all types of workshops and gatherings and conferences. And that was where I learned about reproductive health and birth, was in a space where I always had a space time to like, I'm going to sit on the floor and listen to somebody. Or, you know, there were midwives in and out the building all the time. There were massage therapists. And when I left and all of that community was gone, I was in a state of shock for a while. I would say maybe like the mm -hmm. first six months that we were going to learn midwifery and in that space. Because, you know, you read spiritual midwifery and you're just like, okay, well, maybe there's a black one or maybe there is <laughs> a space of like that. And that's, it's starting to come up now, you know, like the National Black Midwife Alliance is here. Um, Jenny Joseph does her calls often or I try to hop on the IG lives of like the Black Midwives today and be in the comments section and to try to stay in community with folks. And also like to get that, that what's the word I'm looking for? The assurance and the affirmative, you know, conversations on how to move forward and how to keep yourself safe and to also know that what you guys are going through and how to do it differently that we don't have to stop we just have to do it differently now i, I want to say that um the average time that a certified nurse midwife practices doing deliveries in a hospital is five years after that they go into teaching or administration um, it, but they're no longer doing births and the only thing that really 
kept me sane was doing the home births. One thing I, 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 I started doing, I have a contract and it says you're paid up by 36 weeks or I'm not coming and I'm not giving you no money back. Because I have spent a lot of time and blocked off five weeks out of my life that, to be on call for you for this baby. So, um, yeah, that's that 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 that's one of the ways I have learned to handle the um, the money part of it. But I'm still not the best person to deal with the money. And um, another thing is that gotta gotta all commit to training this next generation coming up and taking them on to mentoring them to um, encouraging them to give them the ins and outs and what we've figured out over the years that we've been doing this. Right now, I'm no longer primary. Um, and I would probably have quit if I hadn't met a young sister Tarina Edwards, who was, was struggling trying to get through the CPM process with no, no black um, uh, preceptors, because that's another problem with that process. And um, so I'm able to be the wise woman in the room and to be at the birth and to be involved and to answer the questions and when problems and things turn up and uh, but not have to take every call and um, so I, that's what the the older ladies used to do the grand midwives they usually had three or four apprentices so that it wouldn't be so hard on the young family and if one couldn't come somebody else could come and um, the midwives chose who they who they wanted to train. And Miss Smith, Miss Margaret Smith, I was really lucky to get to know two of the grand midwives really well before they died. And she told me that they would choose the one that they were going to train from the babies that were born with a veil. And when I told my mother that, she told me that I had been born with a veil. And I was born with a veil in the hospital because the doctor wasn't there yet and they were holding her legs together to keep me from coming out. Or uh, that probably wouldn't have happened. I, 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 so nowadays we don't even know who are the special babies and ones that are born with a veil or the ones who see things is what the old ladies call it. That's very interesting. It's a, it's a good way to, to think about how we're entering midwifery practice. It's funny that you say a veil or see things. I've, since a child have always had this intuition about, about death and about seeing things and about being knowing what's happening and things like that. And so, and I never really quite understood it. I was always the counselor of the family, even at a young age and didn't quite understand. And so 
I, I wholeheartedly believe that what we're doing and the work that we're doing is, is so soul bearing. Um, it's such a work of, of ushering souls and you have to be a, a particular, that's why I call it peculiar. Because if you look up the word peculiar, it's not necessarily a negative word, but it says it's strange and good in a different way. It's just un, undescriptive, undefining. And I really feel like that, that our work is so unique that you really cannot uh, have great adjectives or words to just really describe what midwifery does. So, you know, you mentioned about the elder midwives and some of the grand midwives that you've worked with when you were starting out as a midwife. How can we take some of those things that they passed on? And, and maybe I should start off saying, what are some of the things that they passed on and how can we incorporate that into our practices today as midwives? I mean, I think we've come away so much from our roots and our beginnings. How, how can we incorporate our ancestors, not just by lineage and about what we feel and how we've uh, um, entered midwifery, but what practices can we involve um, into that sense of community to really bring birth for the Black community back to that community style work that, we, that they used to do? I mean, they carry the entire rural South for, for generations. How can we get back to that? Really, that's a hard question to ask, I think, because uh, it's something probably that we all want, but maybe we don't know. I wish that we could, you know, get them from the grave to kind of just sit at their feet and hear the riches that they would tell us. You know, I think that it would be such a beautiful thing because we're really at a pivotal point in, in history, I think, when it comes down to maternal health for the Black woman. You know, they still had a lot of the same problems. I remember Miss Margaret Smith. Um, she was in Utah, Alabama. She had delivered everybody for four counties around. And she told me that she would have to go into town on payday, which was Friday, and stand on the corner and look for the dads that owed her for delivering their babies. And she got $25 a piece for delivering babies. So, um, <laughs> part of the problem is that um, a lot of our people believe that the white man's way is better or his water is wetter. And it was a step up from us being uh, denied access to hospitals for us to then be able to go to the hospital and have a baby. And so mid, the, the black midwifery was considered second-class citizenship. And a lot of our people still believe that, uh, you know, it's, um, it's what you do when, when you have no other choice. So part of it is, educating our people and um, I think it's more people realizing but it's slow and we certainly don't have the majority of people even knowing who we are or what we do so I wish I did have the answer I, I mean, I can say what I'm trying to do. Please. Uh, <laughs> I'm reading a lot. 
I, uh, several of the grand midwives left behind their stories and I'm reading their books and reading their biographies. Um, and then there's also current um, academics who are digging in those resources and finding even more information and writing new books. I'm reading those books as well. And I've been finding that the academic side of midwifery has been really preparing or helping me, and I would say, with understanding why it's why we feel like midwifery is leaving and how to obtain it, how to get back to it. And it's it's really understanding how white supremacy functions and and why you know, we're now in this pivotal point of talking about abolition. You know, we started off with prison um, abolition, but also realizing that a lot of these systems, systems um, and institutions that also need to be abolished. Um, and, and white man's water is not where, right? And going into nurse midwifery, it's really trying to take as much of the history as possible you know when i do get around elders i just sit and listen and particularly you know mama claudia booker she would do these workshops in dc and you know she would say hey what you can't just show up and we would be there 12 13 hours just doing all types of um, readings and learnings about herbs and physicians and this was before I went to midwifery school. It was actually, you know, the last time I saw her. And she called me when I was in midwifery school and I would just sit on the phone with her for like an hour or two hours and I would just let her talk. And everything that she said was something that I probably needed to hear. And I know we don't have as many elder midwives today, but anyone older than me is an elder midwife at this point. And really trying to not make the same mistakes that they've made. You know, when they tell me don't go there, I listen. I don't go there. When they tell me to, you know, do it this way, I listen. I do it this way. Even though my my own personality is to like, well, I just want to learn for myself. And I did that when I went to MLO, and it was probably the dumbest thing I've ever done. But now I'm in the space to where if they tell me to do it this way, I know that they're telling me this way to protect me. Um, and really listening to what those messages are. I think, um, I think too, it's this process of unlearning. Um, and it's not even like the re it, relearning is a part of it, but it's unlearning. And we really have been heavily brainwashed to believe that what the system knows is best for us. But we've been practicing ritual and carrying on traditions for such a long time. And I think some of us forget you know, that what we're doing is part of what healers have taught us, you know, and it's like small things, like <laughs> everyone's prepping their elderberry syrup for the for, for flu season. You know, we, let's, not, let's not take that lightly. Like someone taught you that. Where did you get that from? You know, the blessing of the baby, where did you get that from? Blessing of the mama, you're, you're sitting there, you know, massaging her feet, you know, ritual that has been instilled in us too, but we have to unlearn what we've been given or what's been forced on us and relearn things that we already have instilled in us, the, the practices that we already have. 
So I think I think that's part of it too. Voice Messages is designed to give listeners a way to offer spoken feedback to show hosts. Click the link on the show profile and record a message for up to one minute. Click send this message and your question or comment may be featured in an upcoming show. It's that simple. Like what you hear so far? Never miss a show by clicking that subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, so thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the show. Um, what would you say, and as we start to close, what would you say is your hope for um, Black birthing people in America? And then secondly, your hopes for Black midwifery in America? Well, and I want to see us, our, our women and our babies survive because um, it's really bleak right now. We, we spend the most money on obstetrical care and we have the worst outcomes of any industrialized nation from the last 30 years. Maternal mortality rate has been going up in every other industrialized nation and a whole lot of war-torn countries, they're still bringing the numbers down because they do use midwives and most of them are not nurse midwives. Uh, right now here in Georgia, there's 90 some counties that don't have anybody doing um, doing births and no hospitals. Uh, it's ridiculous. And we have a, 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 a 33, 34% C-section rate. So you can tell me one woman in three can't have a baby? Something is not right here. There's something wrong with the system. And we have to bring it back to common sense. Common sense is not common anymore. So we are working on uh, Community Midwives National Alliance to certify community midwives, women that are in the community that are already respected, that are already trusted, that would probably have been the midwives had they left us alone. And we got to start taking care of each other as best we can. I particularly am, you know, doing the millennial thing where I am spending a lot of time on futurism and thinking about thriving and hoping that the pieces will fall into part as we reach for this larger goal. And so for me, it's, if this is what I imagine birth without white supremacy looks like, this is what I'm going to talk about. These are the words that I'm going to manifest and that it will eventually start happening, you know, and then using the um, social media to be able to bring that message. So using Twitter, using Instagram, where I, I do childbirth education on Twitter every day. Anyone who has something to ask, anytime I see a post, I am, this is what it's actually supposed to be. This is what the evidence base is like. Uh, and this is what, it is, there's so much 
information. It's, it's as if no one knows how to birth anymore. And you're, even the doctors don't even know what they're doing. It's they coming out and it's like, well, that's why she, you know, needed a C-section. I'm just like, no, they lied to you. Um, and it's, it's for me, it's really about trying to, because the ones who are birthing now are, are younger than me, actually. And they're on TikTok. They're on Instagram, there are in spaces where the elders aren't anymore. So the message of who do you listen to is getting even more disturbed and, and you know, there isn't a connection anymore. And I'm hoping that with quarantine and all of these webinars that it is now putting information in people's houses that they didn't have before because now they now have access to a midwife who's in Georgia and they live in Kansas or they now have access to a midwife in New York and they're in Texas and be able to start putting these pieces together and start learning to where they do need to um, to process this information and again like you were saying Ayana it's like we're unlearning and that takes time I think I think I was in midwifery school when someone said like it takes seven years for a new a practice to that is unevidence based or that was no longer used in a hospital to finally get out of the system. And I remember being like, "What the seven years of us dealing with this before we fully stopped doing episiotomies? That's wild, right?" Um, and so I am also knowing that it's probably going to take time, but also talking about the most radical possibility of us completely exiting the system, completely divesting from what that looks like and putting that energy into ourselves. If we are dying in this hospital and we get out of this hospital and we create a space for us to birth without them. And that does not also, that does not have to mean that we're going to only do home births and birth centers. We can create our own obstetrical units in our, wherever we want, right? And we need to start thinking about what that looks like because these places are violent and it's looking like they can't be reformed um, and if we know it can't be reformed we know these systems can't be reformed we have to create our, our new uh, what that looks like and I'm hoping we can start putting the language to what that is but also building and creating that action um, I think it's critical that um, um, we use our voice um, and I felt very stifled the first couple of years, I felt, I think part of the reason why I fell into this spiral of isolation um, is because it's like what midwife Afu was saying, someone's always over your shoulder. You have to perform for what they want you to do. And that does, that's not how it has to be. And that's not how we have to practice going forward, you know? So not letting anyone shut you down using your voice. And that includes like our, our patients, our clientele, their families too. Like define what healthcare looks like for you. Define what that means to you. But that requires again, the unlearning. <laughs> and then it requires us to kind of foster and usher them in. Um, I like the I like the um, saying that you said. I think Effie was um, we're gatekeepers. Who's who said that? Somebody said they're gatekeepers, but we don't really even have the key. Like I'm not here to do your birth or like even like manage your labor, even though we call it that. I'm here to 
just be here with the knowledge that I have to assist you, but like outside of myself. So realizing that it has nothing to do with me, you know, and if we can take ourselves outside of that and recognize that this is someone's special journey, no matter what it looks like, it might not look like how we want it to look like, but it is someone's special journey and it's about what that means to them, you know, that allows them to propel their voice forward too. Like I had the birth that I wanted in the hospital that can be done. You know, I had the birth that I wanted in a birth center or at home. Like I had what I wanted and I had who I needed there. And so I think it's all about the power of the voice too. And even with um, um, our elder here, um, midwife Um Salama saying, you know, the, the CPM, CNM, you know, we're all, we're all doing the same work. And I don't, I don't get, I don't get the tension. I don't understand it. I, it, it, it makes no sense to me because guess what? I'm going to learn some things from a CPM that I'll never get in midwifery school, like as a CNM. And I know some CPMs who are like, oh, well, that's a cool technique that you just, you know, you showed me. Like vice versa. We're here to all absorb and get as much as we can from one another. Not um, being parasitic, but being to the point where we can help and go forward and move our communities in a way that is not happening right now. So I, I think it, it all boils down to the power of the voice. and. Um, We've been silenced for far too long. We've been invalidated for far, far too long, not just as um, midwives, but as black women and black healers. And it's, it's time that we, we shake things up and be a little bit radical <laughs> with, our, with our practice, you know, to continue this work. Absolutely. I find that um, it's interesting as you guys are, you know, having this conversation, that you mentioned unlearning. And it's not only an unlearning in the community, but there's an unlearning that has to happen in the midwife community. Um, we've been indoctrinated uh, by patriarchal authorities, you know, ACNM, NARM, uh, ACOG, all of these patriarchal authorities that say that we're supposed to practice and be licensed and do these things in such and such a way, where those, those authorities did not exist um, and, and they were the dismantling of the grand midwife. It was, it was, it was, you know, health, you know, departments of specific states that dismantled the way that midwives were caring for the people. And so we have to unlearn that. And we have to realize that when we subscribe to these authorities, we also subscribe to the indoctrination, the, what they preach and what they teach us. Um, and so if we're going to reform this, we have to do a lot of unlearning as midwives. And that is why we have the, uh, the ridiculous contentions that exist between certain types of bodies. That is why we have a CPM versus a CNM. You know, why can't we all just be midwives? Why? Because the patriarchal authorities say that we cannot. So those are the things that we need to start to give voice to. Um, we need to, to, to start to break down. We need to call a spade a spade, like I like to say, not sugarcoat it, not you know, water it down. It is what it is and it needs to be identified and it needs to be spoken about. So I definitely agree with everything that you guys have said. Um, as we look at you know, really trying to give voice to black midwifery, what are some of the ways that the community can support midwifery to help them because we all realize that the answer is in community health care 
right? And midwives traditionally have been operating from a, a platform of community healthcare. However, just like, you know, our grand midwife has said, the reality is, you know, those midwives back then, those grand midwives back then were, were still looking for their payment. So how can we get this community to really look at, to support us, even in our work today? How can they support us so that we can support them affecting a change in what these, the, you know, the mortality and morbidity rate for our Black mothers and babies? I mean, I think you said it. It, it, it goes past this too, but honestly, money, like real money. You know, we have a lot of organizations now who have come out because of the social un unrest <laughs> that's been ongoing, but is more evident this year because people have to stay at home and they see it and it's accessible. So, you know, you want to put your, your money where your mouth is, donate to a midwife, like donate to a birth center, donate to your local practice. Um, you know, it, it's cool to get a grant. Like, that's cool. That's cool. But like, t take your hand in your pocket and, and put that money towards a midwife, like literally, or a midwife who's going to school. And I know plenty of people who are doing this um, now, which is great, but we need more of it. Like, like, let's be, let's be clear. And people have money. And if we're going to come outside of our community, white people have money, you know? So if, if you really, if you really are invested in, in our work, and as you call it, being an ally, which I'll use that term loosely, then put your money where your mouth is. Donate, you know? Um, and then again, the fostering of, um, of young, young black midwives. It, <laughs> amidst, amidst the heaviness of the work, it does take a lot to do that, but we do need to, we need to help our, our future by fostering them, so. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I believe there is enough black wealth to address the maternal mortality. And we need to start discussing how to redistribute that wealth, right? And, you know, the other day I was listening to a talk with a doula who works with a lot of celebrities and didn't talk about wealth redistribution. I didn't talk about that. And I was very frustrated how, like, you have access to that while you're on this call with midwives who are struggling with their clients and in their communities. And again, we're being gatekeepers, even in a class, you know, scenario. And really, I would really want us to start calling that out, right? You know, it's no longer a problem like, oh, this happens to poor people. Well, it's happening to your people because your people, your, those poor people are also Black people, right? And if you are talking about Black Lives Matter and you're doing all of these other things, you need to start putting that money into protecting Black women. You know, we've been seeing that message pretty clearly this year. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that message then comes into keeping us alive when we give child, when we, you know, doing childbirth and how, what that looks like. It's enough to fund Black schools and Black universities. And again, we're upholding the patriarchy, right? And so in that space where you'll see celebrities do that. They're doing it in the ways of like, well, how do we protect the black man? Or how do we uplift patriarchy? How do we continue to hopefully trickle down to those black women who also need this help? We, I want us to start calling it out, call it a spade at a spade. If like, there's enough black wealth to stop maternal mortality in America right now. And 
make that also part of this movement and and how we care about each other and how we you know are thinking about the black community at large is dealing with the problems that we have in our own home first and that takes i'm gonna piggyback off of you too that takes um, healing of the generational trauma, because I don't think that some of us realize that we have the wealth or we put that money towards the material things that, okay, again, has, has been ingrained in us that the car is important, the house is important, the travel, all this. You're not realizing that your birth is important, that, that healthcare is important because, you know, you don't have that, you're dead. So what good is it to you if, if you're not able to allocate funds appropriately? Like, we have to heal from this generational trauma that, again, that's patriarchal, that an and enslaved mindset that what, what we have just goes to frivolous things. We need to reinvest really in our community. I, I, I completely agree. Also, um, we are, we're mammals, just like other mammals. When you're having, when you're, when you're giving birth, um, you need a certain environment. You need quiet. You need privacy. You need to feel comfort, comfort. You need to feel safe. The thoughts, thoughts and um, emotions affect your hormones and your hormones affect your thoughts and your emotions. And if a woman is not feeling safe where she's at, then cortisol and adrenaline are released, which will slow down or even stop the labor to give her a chance to get where she feels safe. We're talking about failure to progress, which is the most common cause of C-section and you're, 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 you're five times more likely to um, have uh, a fatal outcome if you have a, a surgery than if you have a, a, a normal delivery. So we've also got to talk about these common sense things that aren't common anymore that, so that women understand that they need to feel safe with the person that's taking care of them and that if this one I don't feel safe with this one then before I was ready for me to have this baby I need to look around and see who else I can find the the medical system what they study is pathology they're the problem solver but birth is not a pathology it's a normal natural body function and if you're looking for problems, you're, you know, if that's what you're trained to do, then you're more likely to find us. Or to, if you see something that could be this or could be that, you're going to diagnose it as a problem. You know, our job as midwives is to study normal and observe. And if you see something that's headed in the direction away from normal before it gets to the line which it crosses over and says this is a problem we need to start working on it we start working on it preventatively ahead of time if somebody's blood pressure is starting to creep up i'm not going to wait till it gets 140 over 90. i'm going to start telling them things to do 
you know, you could, it's much more easier to fix a small problem than it is a big problem. So that's another thing, too, that we have to talk about and get out into the community that people understand that having a baby is not this big, horrible trauma that, you know, somebody has to fix for you. I think because birth became medical at some point in our society, in our history uh, in America, it has come away from the understanding that birth is a natural process and we expect things to go wrong because again, uh, the hospital systems remind you, you know, saying it's a business, right? So because it's a business and because you're, like you said, they're looking for pathology or they're looking to solve a problem and it's viewed in that specific way, there's marketing that also goes along with that. Well, we did this. We saved you. We had to perform an emergency cesarean section, even though it took an hour. And we know that clearly an emergency C-section is not going to take an hour. So was it an emergency? No. But that's what we've told that family. So now that they buy into the idea that their baby was saved and that decision was the right one. Those are the things that need, like you said, need to be, you know, brought to the attention of the community. And the only way that we're going to get that is by our voice and by disseminating our voices throughout this country so people can hear it on so many different platforms, like many of the platforms that you guys have, you know, here. So how, what would be your last, uh, you know, your last words today to um, our listeners? And then how could listeners find you for additional support in learning? I would say, trust yourself, trust your body that um, you've been this baby's environment, his, his total universe for uh, as long as it's existed and you're connected physically, mentally, spiritually, and you will know what's going on with your baby. And trust yourself. That's what I would like to say to to the birthing people out there. I am with Mandela Midwifery here in Atlanta. I'm the senior midwife. I mean, I, I love the young midwives and I um, encourage them as much as humanly possible. And um, I definitely, I take phone calls, so. Peace and blessings. Thank you so much. You have a sweet spirit. Um, if I can leave last parting words, um, trust yourself. I like that. Know who you are um, and get to, get to know yourself, uh, especially for the midwives coming up, you know, um, know what what's important for you in offering care know what community you want to serve like understand that and understand what their needs are um and invest into yourself so that you can then go invest into other others and um take time to really take care of yourself not just this like i'm gonna put a face mask on all stuff like really take care of yourself in work um while it is rewarding in in itself. Um, you're not gonna always receive this upli uplifting um, nature or this uplifting time. You're not always gonna have that. So you have to really invest in yourself 
And then one thing I always like to say is like, sometimes you really just have to flip a table. So <laughs> like, I mean, we, we've got to stop some of the foolishness that is happening. Like it's been far too long. You know, Baldwin's been talking, we, we've heard his work for years. This is, why are we still here waiting, waiting on you to say, someone else to say it's okay to change. They came in and disrupted what we were doing as healers. So it's time for us to reclaim all of that we had, all of that history, um, recognize it for what it is and, and use it because that's ours. It's not anyone else's, it belongs to us. We were healers to start. They, they uh, like you said, they stripped us of it. It's time for us to, sometimes we have to get a little, we have to get a little messy because, you know, they had no problems taking us from, from a land that was ours, you know, um, and bringing us here and then forcing us to build the land that, that they claim is theirs. So it's time for us to, to start flipping tables. I know I say that gently, but I really do mean it with passion. <laughs> well, I ain't flipping over tables gently. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no need to be gentle about it, you know? Um, so, um, so yeah, those are my final thoughts. Um, folks can find me on um, IG at, at the Vagina Chronicles, on Twitter at the Vag Chronicles. They won't let me be great and have the long enough name. Um, you can find me at my website on www.thevaginachronicles.org. Um, and that's where I'm at. Uh, I mean, I, I would say the same message of what I said earlier. I My message is futurism. I want us to dream more. I want us to document those dreams and then make those dreams our realities. Um, if you are thinking of what you want your family to look like, if what then start documenting that and start creating the ways of how can I make that possible. You know, it's it's not just like, oh, here's my 10-year list of things I need to do and go to school. Like really get detailed of like, I want a world hot tub and how do I create that outside? And, you know, I have a really detailed document on what I want my coming to look like, you know, and thinking about what that means for the people who will also be present at that commune and now knowing that we have exited a system and if we exit a system are we now constantly taking all of the adapt adaptogens anymore are we taking tinctures every day probably not because we're probably at rest right and so if i'm dreaming about being at rest then i want to start creating that what that looks like for today and hopefully it will be because you manifested it, that that will be your reality when it is your turn or when it's the turn of the people around you when they're ready to birth. Um, so that's my message. I can be followed at Dolo Chronicles um, on Instagram and on Facebook. And if you are Twitter finger heavy, I'm Sassy E on Twitter. Well, I appreciate each and every one of you for joining me for this conversation. Um, it's a conversation that is long overdue, but I'm grateful that you are the pioneers to having this conversation in our day and age. Um, I really hope that um, it will be disseminated amongst the community, amongst the American um, people, Black Americans, um, where they can understand and, and come up under Black midwifery and support us so that we can be a better support to them. I find that um, the struggle is real, just like each and, of, each and every one of you have you know, said, 
um, but I don't know that the community understands our struggle. And so I want to make sure that the community understands our struggle, but they also understand the valuable, uh, invaluable work that we are doing as midwives to come up under them, to support them, to undergird them as they usher souls into their families. So I thank you guys so much for your um, input, your valuable experiences and love and support that you are giving uh, birthing families around you. And I, I, you know, my words are, are insufficient for the, the amount of accolades and um, applause and thank yous and love that you all should be receiving. So as humbly as I can say, I appreciate you and I thank you. I want to thank you for taking this time to listen to this episode of The Savvy Black Birther. As I always say, when education and empowerment meet, decision-making capabilities improve. Individuals are confident to stand for themselves, and communities are no longer paralyzed by fear, but mobilized towards a desired outcome. We need to be radical in our pursuit of safe and unbiased health care. And as Angela Davis has said, radical simply means grasping things at the root. And you know I believe being radical starts with first being educated and empowered. Next week, we're going to feature the first episode of the Truth About Black Birth series, where I will feature Black and Indigenous families of color, giving them a platform to tell their birth stories. These episodes will be a two-part series, offering an educational component, breaking down the birth story to provide self-advocacy principles and consumer education to listeners. Thanks for joining me this week on The Savvy Black Birther. Make sure to visit my website, Sakina Health, that's S-A-K-I-N-A health.net, where you can find evidence-based information, resources, and more. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate a rating or a review. And don't forget to tell a friend or a family member. This will help me reach many more Black birthing families. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in for the next episode. Be informed, be equipped, and be savvy black birthers.